Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Photography and Video Guru, a podcast devoted to taking your photography and video skills to the next level. Now, here's your host, Curtis Eustis. Hello and welcome to episode 001 of the Photography and Video Guru. So when I initially started this or came up with the idea for this podcast, someone asked me, well, why is it photography and video? Why wouldn't it just be photography and or video? Well, it is and video, but why would it be photography or video? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I can best explain it like this. I think that the photography world is actually blending in uh, very closely with the video world. And I think as a photographer, uh, especially if you're a commercial photographer, you should actually be able to understand how to use and uh, benefit from being able to shoot video as well. To give you an example, I shot an article for a magazine called Sewer and Septic. Now, this is uh, a trade magazine. So, um, it's part of a bigger, bigger organization. So this was a trade magazine. And when they hired me to do it, they said, you know, we can pay you extra if you can shoot some video for us. And I was thinking, okay, well, most of our cameras, you know, all the newer cameras coming out at least will shoot some sort of video, whether it's 1080p or 4k or what have you. So the cameras I had at the time would shoot 1080p. So that's what I did. So I had uh, in my previous, I'd been shooting some uh, industrial videos at a point uh, over a number of years. And so I still had a lot of audio equipment, wireless microphones and such. So I just got all the gear together. I went and shot the video or shot the, the, the photographs for the, the um, magazine. But then at the same time, I shot a lot of B-roll video. And then I did several uh audio clips where the people were talking about the actual subject matter that was being covered on the, on the article. If you guys want to go see that, uh, you can, you can go to uh, YouTube and just type in my name, Curtis, C-U-R-T-I-S, and last name is Hustace, H-U-S-T-A-C-E. And you'll come up with my channel, Curtis Hustace Photography and Video. But that's not what you're looking for. What you're looking for is uh, something by Sewer and Septic, or it could be underneath another publication. But you'll be able to see it. It'll pop up as a uh, video dealing with um, uh, uh, sewer inspections. Uh, that was the article I was doing on. So you can kind of take a look. And so basically I shot a bunch of the video for them and I just handed the footage over to them. They went ahead and edited it together. Uh, they did voiceover. They did a number of different things. Um, but all I did was shoot, shoot the footage and uh, put it together. Uh, they put it together uh, on their end. So I think as it's, you know, um, our, our worlds between photography and video, I think that they're starting to blend together more and more. So, you know, a lot of the newer cameras, for instance, the Panasonic GH4 has a mode where you can actually take a photograph while you're shooting 4k video and taking a still from 4k video is actually very doable um, if it's a true 4k resolution uh, it's only going to be an 8 megapixel file 
The Panasonic GH4, from my understanding, will actually shoot 6K video. And so this is actually a little bit better because when it takes a still from the 6K video, you'll result in an 18 megapixel file. So you can be shooting video constantly while you're actually taking photos too. This would be really nice in portrait photography in that you can catch that perfect moment. There are some downsides to it. For instance, I don't think, you know, you can't use a strobe, so it's going to all have to be natural light. So when I take portrait photography, I'm always out there with a studio strobe, battery pack, and what have you. But with the use of creative use of reflectors, I might be able to achieve uh, something similar to it. So, I mean, typically I'm overpowering the sun is what I'm doing when I take photographs outside. So I'm exposing, I'm, I'm underexposing the background, and then I'm basically exposing the foreground with my studio strobe. So I've got a 400 to 600 watt studio strobe with a battery pack uh, to do that. But keep in mind, our, our photography and video worlds are colliding. And I think that uh, as photographers, we have to learn new skills to stay current. For instance, uh, you know, if, if I'm doing a magazine article, a lot of magazines will have you do the still photographs, but then they went to video for their website. So in the actual magazine article, to see a video about this, please go to our website and then viewers can go, subscribers can go and actually view the extra content. So it's definitely a usable skill uh, and something well worth mastering. And our cameras are getting to be where they're both combination video and photography like the Sony a6500 will actually shoot incredibly good 4k video. Part of the reason is it's oversampling from 6k. So it's actually shooting 6k and then downsampling to 4k, which gives it an added dimension. My Sony a7R2 shoots 4k. It's not oversampling, but it is really nice 4k video. Um, it's beautiful. And then, you know, a lot of the other Sony cameras are doing this well. The D5, Nikon D5 shoots 4K. The new, um, the new Canon 5D Mark IV shoots 4K. So they're putting these capabilities into all these cameras. And it's, it seems to me kind of a shame to waste it. The real topic of this, besides, you know, uh, explaining to you why it's photography and video, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about today about making better photographs and making better photographs uh, simply. A lot of times when I see photographs, I see photographs that are out of focus or blurry. So I want to kind of touch base on why I think uh, those photographs may be, you know, out of focus and blurry. Now, keep in mind, I'm a commercial photographer. Everything I shoot has to be perfectly in focus. It's unacceptable if something is out of focus. And even if my camera is on a studio stand, like a big FOBA $6,000 studio stand, I can still have, believe it or not, motion blur, even if the camera is locked down. There's enough play in it that if I'm messing with the camera while I'm exposing, I can get motion blur. And this is typical. Uh, you'll see this. Uh, it depends on the rig that you're using. But for instance, uh, I'm shooting uh, e-commerce photography, jewelry, and I've got the Canon 5D Mark III locked down on the actual FOBA studio stand. We're using constant light because I have to shoot a video of the product after I shoot the still. So everything's done in constant light 
my shutter speed's probably around a 60th of a second, shooting at uh, 640 ISO, shooting at F8 or F9, somewhere around in there, uh, using a 180 millimeter lens. Now, the actual piece itself is going to be out of focus if I just shoot one shot. When you're magnifying something that much, uh, your depth of field is going to be incredibly, incredibly shallow. So we have to do a thing called focus stacking. So when I do a focus stack, I start at the beginning of the object or the piece of the object that's closest to the camera, and I adjust my focus incrementally till I get to the, the furthest away. So then I go into a software, uh, software called Helicon, which will then take those photographs and make it one perfectly in-focus camera. So if there's any type of movement in that, it can cause motion blur. So what I used to do, it depends on the rig and how it works, but uh, typically speaking, if I could get a shutter speed of 125th, I will manually focus the camera and use a shutter lease. Uh, but this last time I was on a different set uh, where I was doing this e-commerce, and even though the camera, the 5D Mark III, was locked down on a, on a $6,000 FOBA camera stand, I was getting motion blur and the images were coming out blurred. Now, a lot of things can contribute to motion blur. Number one, the object itself could be moving. Uh, somebody could be walking by the set and depending on the floor. Now, this is a concrete floor, so it's a little bit less, but you'd be surprised how much vibration can come through a concrete floor. And it makes a difference. Uh, you can get a little bit of wind, and which causes that uh, object to swing or sway. Remember, I'm, I'm shooting a pendant, so it's hanging. So it's it's kind of just hanging in the middle of the air. So when I do that, um, uh, you know, motion can cause it to uh, be out of focus or cause motion blur. But this was coming from the camera. So what I had to do was we use a software. Canon comes out with a soft software that's a camera control software that's their own product that allows you to shoot video and still photography remotely. So what I'll do is I'll shoot that product or that individual piece of item and I'll shoot using the software. So I can actually control the focus on the, of the camera remotely. I'll start closest to me and then I'll just keep on pushing the button and moving the focus point further and further back until I get all the exposures. That way, my hands are completely off the camera. I'm not touching anything, and I can get everything perfectly in focus. It saves a lot of time. So another thing, you know, was that's motion blur. But also, let's, let's talk look at portrait photography. So if we're taking a picture of somebody, we always want to focus on the eyes. We can forgive a lot of things, uh, in portrait photography, uh, we can maybe forgive a bad pose. Uh, we can forgive, uh, you know, certain lighting. But if your subject is out of focus or the eyes are out of focus, then that's a, a no-go for me. You always want to focus on the eye that is closest to the camera. And depending on your depth of field and what f-shop you're, you're shooting at, if you're trying to get a nice bouquet, and I always said bokeh, and no one ever told me whether it's bouquet or bokeh. I think it's bouquet. But anyway, if you're trying to blur the background and basically separate your subject from the background, you're going to be shooting at a very shallow depth of field. Now, you have to be very careful with this when you're doing a portrait photographer. 
or, or a portrait photograph. If you're shooting on the eye and your depth of field is incredibly shallow, the other eye that's furthest away may be out of focus. So you'll see this a lot in, in lenses that have an incredibly uh, wide opening, like a 1.8 f-stop. So to me, to have one eye in focus and then having the nose out of focus and then the other eye out of focus, where your shallow depth of field is so shallow that the rest of the face is out of focus is, is unappealing to me. But keep in mind too, so when you're shooting at something like this, a 1.8, and let's say your, shallow, your depth of field is so shallow, anything can affect the focus. Your model could move, and if your model moves just a fraction of an inch, then everything's going to be out of focus. So maybe you'll get the tip of the nose in focus, but her eyes are going to be out of focus. Or maybe her ear will be in focus, and the rest of her is out of focus. So not only do you have to lock down the camera, you really need to lock down the model when the depth of field is going to be that shallow. But as I said, the depth of field to me, uh, having something that shallow isn't really appealing to me. I want my subject to be in focus, the face especially, the eyes especially, and the background out of focus. So my actual lens, I shoot with a with a uh, Sigma uh, A7R2, and I use a 70 to 200 f4 lens, and that's really good. I mean, to me, I can always blur the background. I can get the face in focus. I'm never really shooting at f4. I'm probably shooting closer to f5.6, something around there, just enough to get that to get that nice bokeh or bokeh in the background, get your background blurred, but my whole face is in focus. So, and keep in mind too, and it's another thing, uh, we get motion blur uh, when we have telephotos. It's more prevalent in telephotos than you would have a wide angle. So look at it this way. Let's say I'm standing across a 10-foot room and I want to turn on the light with the light switch across the room. Of course, I walk right over, I touch the light switch with my finger and turn on the light. Easy breezy. Okay, no problem. All right, so when I touch that light switch, when I'm walking right up to it, I can reach out to it and my finger touches that light switch. And I can see it touch the light switch and I don't have any problem taking my finger and putting it on the light switch to switch it. I never miss it. I always hit the light switch. Now, let's say you're 10 feet across the room and you get a 10-foot painter's pole. So now, try to flip that light switch with that 10-foot painter's pole. So you'll be hunting around. It's going to be spinning around. It's going to be moving around the switch, maybe not quite touching it, maybe touching it occasionally here and there. Uh, and eventually, you know, you might get it on the first try, but more than likely, you're probably going to get that, flip that light switch on the third or fourth try. So it's harder control. It's harder to control that painter's pole at ten feet long than it is your finger at two feet long. That's the same principle with telephoto lenses. So having a telephoto lens is a lot like having that painter's pole. It's going to be moving around uh, all over the place, and your shutter speed is going to have to be fast enough to compensate 
for that movement. So if you're shooting a telephoto lens and you're only going to be shooting and you're going to be shooting at its maximum length, let's say a 400 millimeter lens, and you're only shooting at a 15th of a second, I can almost guarantee, and you don't have it locked down, it's going to be blurred, whatever you're shooting. So you have to practice good technique. And good technique, and this applies to whether you're shooting with your, your phone, your iPhone, your Android phone, your DSLR, with a telephoto, you're going to have to steady the camera and pick up a, or a shutter speed that's appropriate for the distance that you're shooting at. So if I'm all the way at 400 millimeters, so I want to probably shoot at a 400th of a second or 500th of a second. I want to probably shoot a little bit faster than what the focal length of the lens is uh, to try to get it steadied. Now that's not a, you know, a set in stone type rule. Typically speaking, it's a pretty good rule, but you know, you can shoot a little bit slower. It depends if your camera has any type of image stabilization. It depends if your camera has any optical stabilization. Uh, you know, sometimes with these stabilizations, you can get uh, one or two stops uh, or maybe even more if it's like a new five axis image stabilization um, to where you can still get a sharp image even though your shutter speed is slower than it should be. With that in mind, uh, if you have that, if you don't have that image stabilization, I used to shoot with a, um, on my Nikon, I had a Nikon 80, 80 to 200 uh, Nikon lens, and this was one of the original ones. And what was nice about that Nikon 80 to 200, it was tack sharp. It was a 2.8, it was tack sharp. It was beautiful lens, a beautiful piece of glass. It did not have the you know hypersonic uh, drives in it. It didn't have anything, it didn't have any optical stabilization. I was shooting with a D700 at the time, which was a 12 megapixel camera, great camera, beautiful images, but it didn't have any type of sensor stabilization. So you had to be very, very conscious of the fact of your shutter speed uh, and how you were shooting that image because if you had any type of motion to it and you're let's say you're shooting at a 200 millimeter focal length then and you're shooting too slow you would get motion blur now there's some things that you can do besides locking it down on a tripod there's things you can do to stabilize the camera one of the things is you can just lean up against a post okay steady your body as best you can um, now you can actually put the uh, lens against the post and if there's no motion in the post you know it's all you need is somebody to uh, bump the post or something like that and then all of a sudden as you're taking the photograph it's it's going to have some motion blur to it but anything you can do to steady it like that is great if you're traveling uh, you know it's always good to have somebody with you a partner so my wife is only five foot three so what I can do a lot of times is take my camera and lens and I'll rest it on her shoulder and then use a long telephoto. But honestly, with travel photography, I rarely use a 70 to 200. I'm usually shooting much wider. A 16 to 35 lens is usually what I have on the camera. Rarely. I take it with me, but honestly, I can count on how many, on one hand, how many times I've actually used the 70 to 200. But that's an aside. Okay. So with a wide angle lens, you know, we're talking about you, you don't get much motion blur. And it's because you're shooting at a wide angle. It's not concentrating on just a very small area. 
you're taking a very wide angle. So at a 16 millimeter lens, you know, you could probably get away with 125th of a second or, or 130th of a second. And, and you probably wouldn't notice any motion blur. So, you know, I love living in modern times because we have this thing called our phones and they're smartphones. So I carry around an Android smartphone, a Samsung S7, but I've carried around iPhones, love iPhones too. My wife has an iPhone uh, 7 Plus or whatever the new one is, the 7 Plus. But anyway, like the Samsung phone, the S7 has a great camera in it. It's a 16 megapixel camera. And, you know, before in the day, I used to carry just like a little pocket camera with me. But I don't do that anymore because my I always have my phone with me. And honestly, it's it it takes pretty decent photos. But this is runs into the same thing, too. If you're taking photos with your phone, you need to uh, make sure that the image stabilization is turned on in the phone. And then if you're zooming in on the phone, keep in mind that uh, you're not actually doing an optical zoom. So you use your two little fingers and you expand them out and then it zooms in on whatever you're taking a photograph of. What you're doing is called an electronic zoom. And a lot of cameras have these too, where they'll have, uh, especially pocket cameras, they'll have an electronic zoom. It's not so much for DSLRs. DSLRs don't have that. But uh, your pocket cameras do and your uh, cell phones do. And what you're doing is you're actually zooming in on the sensor. So if you have a 16 megapixel sensor and you're zooming all the way in uh, on that sensor, you'll notice everything starts to get grainy and uh, sort of fuzzy. It's because you're only taking a photograph of a portion of the sensor. So it's almost better. It's almost better if you ask me to take a photograph uh, and not zoom in and then try to crop it later if you really have to. Uh, but that's where it's actually better to not try and zoom, but to actually walk up to whatever you're photographing and shoot it. So, you know, if, if it's something you don't want to do, make these people a little wet, far away, walk up to your subject and take a photo. Now, if you don't want them photo noticing that you're photographing them, that's totally different. But if it's like family and you're doing a portrait, then walk up to them and, and, and frame it the way you want it. Don't zoom in uh, using an electronic zoom. It's probably one of the worst things you can do. You're just decreasing the resolution and throwing away pixels that you probably don't need to throw away. Another thing, uh, I never do in-camera sharpening. So whenever I'm shooting, I'm shooting in RAW. Uh, I never shoot in JPEG, um, and we can have a discussion about that later. But um, I'm always doing uh, sharpening in post. So you know whether I'm using Lightroom or Capture One, uh, until the image is finished, uh, I don't sharpen until it's actually finished. Um, so, and sharpening will help a little bit, but it will not correct motion blur. So what happens if when you put sharpening on a photograph that has motion blur in it? Well, you just get a sharp blurry photo. So it doesn't make anything sharp. Um, it just enhances an already uh, sharp photo. Okay, so it increases, but if it's blurry, there's nothing you can do about it. If, if it's the camera has moved around and uh, it's gotten blurry, there's absolutely nothing you can do. Um, you know, and when we talk about uh, taking photographs, you know, we have to consider uh, autofocus systems too. 
So some autofocus systems, not all autofocus systems were created equal. Right now, probably one of the best autofocus systems on the market besides the Nikon D5, which is a $6,000 camera, would be the Sony a6500. You know, back in the day, uh, when I first started photography, um, I actually had an autofocus camera and manual focus cameras and actually shot with Minolta cameras. And I think the first camera I ever shot with was a Minolta 9000 autofocus camera. And I can't remember the manual focus Minolta camera I have. I want to say it's like an X700, something like that, which was a manual focus camera, manual lens. I used that for basketball. So um, basically I'd pre-focus on a spot, wait till somebody hit that spot and then take the photograph. But with the... The uh, Minolta 9000, I think it was a 9000. It's been so long. I'm really dating myself here. So with the Minolta 9000, the focus point, I only had like one focus point. And my first job uh, as a commercial photographer was shooting for a university, shooting sports photography. And so, you know, I would have uh, to take... Every week, I'd go to the game, take all the photographs that would appear on the inside of the program in black and white film, and after the game, I would develop all those photographs, print out the good ones, hand them off to the athletic department, then they would have the program for the next game. So then they would print the program for the next game. Now, the cover and the back cover and the inside of the front and inside of the back cover were all shot in color. So... For each sport that I shot for, they didn't have much money. So they would give me six rolls of color transparency film to shoot. So starting out as a sports photographer, I don't know if any of you have ever shot sports. But starting out, you're lucky to get two, maybe four frames out of a roll of film um, that are decent exposures. Uh, because you're just learning. You know, it's, it's, it was my first commercial gig. I'd never done sports photography before. Maybe some, but not on that scale. So I would shoot, uh, you know, no pressure there. So I would, uh, at the end of the season, they give me, uh, I'd shoot, I'd shoot six rolls of film, and then I'd hand it to them, and then the next season they would appear on the cover. And so, I mean, today our cameras are so much nicer in that we have so many more focus points. Back in the day, I had the one focus point, and then I would basically focus on something and then recompose. So my focus point was in the middle of the frame. So, you know, and, and a lot of people still do that. They'll just have the single focus point, focus on something, and then recompose. There was no, no such thing as continuous focus back then. There was no such thing uh, as, yeah, there's no such thing as continuous focus like we have today. You know, today is nice because we can tell like a Sony a6500, which shoots 12 frames per second, it will sit there and actively track the subject as it moves and pretty much keep it in focus. Now, the Nikon D5 is the king of this. You know, of course, it's a $6,000 camera. And, you know, out of 100 photographs, it'll have 100 in-focus sharp photographs. I just saw a thing where they were reviewing the Sony A99 II, uh, which is their DSLR, and they said that it gets pretty close, 
maybe 95 frames out of 100 uh, were in focus, which is still pretty damn good um, for half the cost of a D5. Um, but I digress. So, I mean, when we talk about our focus systems, uh, it depends on what you're photographing. So if I'm shooting a uh, portrait, I will focus on the eye nearest to me and then recompose the shot. Now, like the Sony has eye focus. When that mode actually works in a continuous focus mode, I can activate it by pushing a button on the back and then it'll look and find the eye and then focus on that eye and keep that eye in focus no matter what the model does. So she's moving her head to the left or to the right. It works pretty well, but occasionally, you know, it's like anything, it's not perfect. So like anything, it will sometimes grab the wrong eye or the furthest eye away when I want the closest eye, it gets a little confused. So, you know, at that point, you know, you can decide whether to continue to try using that or to switch it back over. Um, you know, I like to, I haven't really messed around too much with the eye tracking feature. I've done a little bit with it, um, but usually my models aren't moving around that much. So I will focus and recompose or move my focus spot to where I want it and then take the photograph, but always keeping that eye in focus. And that's another thing, you know, these new cameras, you can move the focus spots around. Back in the day, you couldn't do that. So, I mean, you know, I will take today over yesteryear any day of the week. So when we talk about improving our photography and improving just the fact that everything is in focus, so keep in mind kind of what I've talked about. Number one, uh, picking the appropriate shutter speed for the focal length of the lens. Keep in mind that when you're zoomed all the way out to the farthest reach of your lens, let's say 400, 200 millimeters, it's like that painter's pole. It's the end of that painter's pole is going to be moving around. No matter how much you try to hold it still, it's going to be moving around and it's going to have motion to it. You add to that the motion of the subject and then you could probably get a blurry photograph if you're not careful. Two, always focus, not two, but uh, in addition, always focus if you're doing a portrait on the eye closest to the camera, not further away. And I always like to keep my depth of field so the entire face is in focus. The face is the most important thing. The eyes are the, the windows to the soul. So you have to make sure that the eyes are in focus and you have to make sure that the eyes are lit. Three, never, ever use the electronic zoom. That is the kiss of death, if you ask me. The electronic zoom, if there's no other way and you have to use it, that's fine. But you're probably going to get an unusable photograph anyway. Uh, you know, electronic zoom photos have always been blurry. You can't see anything anyway. You zoom in, it's lost all detail. And then again, we're playing with that broom handle or that painter's pole again, where it's stretched all the way out to the end. And it's moving all around. And unless you steady the camera, it's very difficult to take. And, then, you know, and that's one of the problems with some of these pocket cameras and our phones is that the when we have to hold these cameras and hold these phones away from us. So we have to, to put them away from our bodies. With a DSLR, we can actually tuck our elbows in, bring our arms back to our body, 
and steady it and put the camera up against our face, look through a viewfinder, and it's a much, much steadier platform. You get a point and shoot or a, uh, a phone and, you know, phones don't have viewfinders, so you have to hold them away from your body. I actually have a little Sony RX100 Mark IV that actually has a pop-up viewfinder, so you can actually hold it up against your face, which is nice. And it gives that added uh, ability to stabilize the camera. But when we're talking about like a phone for sure, and a lot of these pocket cameras don't have a pop-up viewfinder, you have to hold it away from your body to see the back screen of the camera, to see what's going on, and to compose your shot. Well, anytime you do this, your arms are two, three feet long, and it's going to increase movement in it, okay? So again, the same principles apply from, for like a DSLR to steady those, uh, the camera and to steady the shot is use something that is standing close by, like a pole, a bench, rest your arms on it, put your arms on it, put your body against the pole, lean up against the wall, whatever, to try and steady it. And it's another thing about shooting uh, that increases uh, quality of the, the photograph. So a lot of our phones and our pocket cameras will actually have everything set up automatically. The ISO is set up automatically. Your f-stop or your aperture is going to be set up automatically. It really, they try to make these as idiot-proof as possible. So all you have to do is press the button. But I want you guys to be smarter than that. I want you guys to be able to adjust your camera and compensate for lighting conditions that the camera doesn't understand. So the cameras actually do a pretty good job. They actually have all these scenarios built into the memory. And so the camera tries to remember uh, and compare scenarios and to try to get the right aperture, the f-stop, uh, ISO, and things like that. But as our environment gets darker, the sensitivity of the sensor has to be increased to glean more light, to collect more light. And whenever that happens, depending on the size of the sensor, more energy has to go into the sensor to do this, which causes noise. Or back in the day when we shot film, it was considered grain. So the faster, if I had a 1600 ISO film, or ASA they called it, if I had a 1600 ASA film, and developed it, it would look pretty darn greeny. And I didn't even think that we had a 3200 ASA too. And that was like really greeny. But it was, it was you know, for low light conditions when you had, had no other choice. Nowadays, our cameras, our low light sensitivity, depending on the camera and the sensor, uh, can do a fairly good job. But keep in mind that the sensors in our phones that we use are tiny little sensors. And they're not very big at all. I mean, if if they're a, th a third of the size of my thumbnail, I'd be surprised. So, I mean, they're tiny, right? Even though it's a 16 megapixel sensor, it's tiny. So anytime I start getting into low light conditions, if I don't have any extraneous light coming in to help out the sensor, it's going to speed up the ISO way up, okay? Which is going to cause a lot of noise and grain in the film. But Invariably, it's going to get to a certain point where it can't increase the ISO, so it's got to drop the shutter speed down, and then all of a sudden, we get a blurry photograph. Same thing with a pocket camera. The ISO performance on these pocket cameras, it depends on the pocket camera, the size of the sensor, but 
it's only going to be able to push it so far before it has to start dropping the shutter speed. So you have to keep an eye on that. So when the shutter speed starts dropping, let's say down to a tenth of a second or fifteenth of a second, you may want to try to add some light. Now, phones will actually have a built-in flash. And I, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of using off-camera flash. But, I mean, if it is what it is. And if that's all you have, that's all you have. You know, and if you're at a restaurant or something like that and you're taking a picture of the family, make sure that your, your light is on. Okay, and it actually flashes. If you don't use a flash, it's going to come out blurry. A friend of mine got married uh, a couple years back, and he asked me how much it was to do the wedding, and I told him the price. I don't do weddings on a regular basis. I try to avoid them unless somebody specifically asks for me, and then it's usually fairly expensive because I don't want to do it. For him, though, I gave him a fairly decent price, um, and uh, without photographs, just to show up and shoot the shoot the wedding. And he's like, well, you know, um, I got these other three photographers that are going to do it for like $600. And I was like, okay, three photographers are going to shoot your wedding for $600. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, there's no way that I can do that. And I said, you know, uh, I'm happy to do it for you, but my price is my price. And, you know, I have to have that price. So he hired those three photographers. No, no skin off my nose. I don't care. That's fine. Uh, but I went to his wedding and I'm sitting in the chapel and the three photographers were in there and it's a dark chapel. They are using uh, rebel cannons, which is fine. The rebel cannons fine, but it's extremely dark and they're using kit lenses and with no flashes at all. So after the wedding and I actually brought my camera and I brought uh, a flash. And so when the wedding party came in, I shot one photograph with the flash of everyone coming in and everyone leaving. I figured I'd just give it to him. And I asked him, how were the photographs in the chapel? And he goes, well, they, I said, were they blurry? He goes, every single one. There wasn't a single one, except for maybe one girl had um, a camera on a tripod uh, and he goes, those were in focus, but it was dark. They were all dark. And uh, he was very disappointed with the fact they couldn't catch any of the, the images because they were shooting at uh, high ISOs and low shutter speeds. Okay. So keep in mind, um, you have to shoot what's appropriate for the environment. And uh, you have to uh, know how to compensate for those low light environments. So in a low light environment, the only thing you can really do is add light. If you're shooting with a DSLR, you know, it doesn't have to be on camera flash shooting at the person. You can bounce it off a ceiling. If the ceiling's low enough, um, turn on every room in the light in the room, be conscious of where the light is coming from. So you're not backlighting your subjects. So the light in back of them is brighter than the light in front of them move them around so the light is actually shining on their on their smiling faces. So just keep in mind, uh, and you know, not all sensors, like I said, are created equal. Your, your, your sensor in your phone is going to be tiny and it's going to have a hard time capturing light where the sensor in like my A7R2 is a full frame sensor and it's going to capture light much, much better. And then like the Sony A7, which is only a 12 megapixel, but it's a full frame sensor. Those pixels are really, really big and they can capture light in a low light situation extremely well because those pixels are so big. 
the bigger the pixel, the more light it can capture, the more information it can capture. So my a7R2, which is a 42 megapixel camera, does very well in low light, but it doesn't do quite as well as the Sony 12 megapixel camera. And it's just because of the size of the sensor. You know, but then also too, but keep in mind that's a CMOS sensor. So when we talk about like, uh, I've got a medium format, Mamiya, and I've got a Atleaf Aptus 2 back, which is a 28 megapixel back. That is a CCD sensor, not a CMOS sensor. So the low light performance on that is horrible. So, I mean, I don't shoot anything over 400 ISO. Typically that's a studio camera. So it doesn't go out and I'm always in controlled light. Uh, I have used it for portraits outside, for commercial work. But again, I'm hauling all my studio strobes out too. So I'm lighting the subject, I'm controlling the environment, uh, and I'm not, um, you know, subject to dark environments. I can always add light to it. So just keep that in mind. So when we're looking for cameras and, you know, things like that, just keep in mind all these things that I've said. So uh, does the camera have an optical zoom or does the camera have an electronic zoom? If it's an electronic zoom, you probably want to stay away from it. You probably want to pick a camera with an optical zoom and make sure, okay, some in the settings, you know, in some of these cameras, like uh, these pocket cameras, if it goes to the end of the optical zoom, it will continue zooming out on the electronic zoom. So you need to shut that function off. So, and you may not know it's gone past the optical zoom and gone into electronic. You should know just from looking through the viewfinder and seeing the quality of it. But in case you don't, uh, just turn that off so you don't have to rely on that because you're not going to get a usable image from it anyway. So, well, today has been wonderful. This is our first episode, episode 001. Thank you for joining us. Uh, truly appreciate your time. Please visit me at www.curtishoustisphotographyandvideo.com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook, uh, Curtis Hustis Photography. You can also find me on YouTube, Curtis Hustis Photography and Video. So on YouTube, I give reviews and things like that. Uh, and I should have some tutorials up on my website uh, here shortly. So check out my website. You can follow me on Twitter, Curtis Hustis. Um, and thank you for your time. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Photography and Video Guru. This has been a Curtis Hustis Photography Production. Please visit us at www.curtishustisphotography.com.